to have one of these. And he said, all right. So she bought it. Next day she went to the office to work. And she was looking at it with amazement still. Her boss came by and he said, what have you got? She said, a thermos. He said, really? He said, what do you have in it? She said, a popsicle and two cups of coffee. <laughs> well, that has absolutely nothing to do with our lesson, but I wanted to start us off with something to wake us up. I need it. Maybe you don't, but after a good meal like we've just had, it's going to be difficult to preach tonight. Appreciate all this being done on our behalf, the uh, wonderful hospitality, the good meal yesterday, and a good one again this evening, and good company to have with it. There's not much any better than that, and following that with an opportunity to worship together and study from a portion of God's Word. I'm grateful for the opportunity to be here this week and to come back to some old stomping grounds and get reacquainted with some folks and meet some new individuals as well. We're delighted you're here tonight. We have guests with us and always glad to have those in our midst on an occasion like this. My dad and my uncle showed up tonight. They uh, surprised us and came. So not too far away. They live over in Fayette. And so glad to have them with us tonight. Tomorrow night, Lord willing, we're going to look at the subject of if live men knew what dead men know. Now we have the idea that life is it for the most part as far as humanity is concerned. Many people live as if there will be no eternity. And so they live life for today. But in many regards, dead men know more than we know as live individuals. So tomorrow night, if the uh, Lord wills, and you'll come be with us, we'll study that subject of if live men knew what dead men know. I appreciate the prayer tonight, Brother Gorganus, and appreciate the good work in which he's engaged and so many good works that are going on. We're just delighted to be a part of work in the kingdom together. Tonight we're going to look at the subject, if I had one sermon to preach to the whole world. It started in 1930. It's called the FIFA World Cup, better known simply as the World Cup. And with the exception of the years 1942 and 1946, because of World War II, the World Cup soccer has been played every four years since its inception some 87 years ago. The world stands next year, in 2018, will be the 88th year of that organization's existence. And the World Cup will be played again. It's difficult for those of us who live in the southern portion of the United States to think there's any other sport other than football that could actually top the charts. But when you look at what the world likes, soccer is the number one sport. And if you have ever watched a World Cup event, you know just how fanatical some of the fans can be. And you know just how many people gather for such an event. The World Cup brings people from around the world wherever it is hosted, much like the Olympics in a different area of the world each time. And when you look at the enormity of those stadiums and those people that are gathered, and you look at the vast number of individuals representing all walks of life, and we as Christians can't help but think, what if we could just have that audience for one night and preach to them about the gospel of Christ? Most of us have been to great venues, where, it, whether it be a concert or a ball game or some other such, where a vast number of people have been gathered. And perhaps you've thought as well, what if we could get this many people to come hear the gospel being preached? I thought about that, and especially with the World Cup taking shape as it is and will, and the number of people not only that will be at the event live to watch it being played, but for all those as well who will watch via television or internet connection or in some other fashion, teeming millions of individuals will watch as their favorite teams come, go into combat in the 
realm of sports with another team? What if we could preach the gospel to that audience? If we could have that same audience just for one hour together or just a few moments together, what would we say? What would I say if I had just one sermon to preach to the whole world? I would hope that we'd have more time than we have allotted for us tonight as we get together. But even if we didn't, we would still be able to proclaim a message that would hit at the heart of every individual that was there. If I had one sermon to preach to the whole world, first of all, I would reveal to them there is one malady, and it kills you. Among those that would be gathered there would be many individuals from third world countries who are accustomed to disease, accustomed to diseases that we, for the most part, have eradicated in our world, but they're very common to those people, malaria and cholera and tuberculosis and so many of those diseases. They're very familiar with those. They live with them on a daily basis. They have not the means financially to be able to overcome those medically. Even if they had the wherewithal, many times the medical technology is not available to them. So they're accustomed to disease and they would understand, perhaps more so than we, about the fact that there is a malady that can kill you because they face it on a regular basis. But I would reveal to them that there is one malady spiritually and it kills you. That malady, of course, is sin. In Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, the Bible says, The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither is ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Spiritual death is the separation of one from the fellowship with God. Physical death, of course, is separation of the body from the soul. Spiritual death, likewise, is a separation. And sin is that great gulf which separates mankind from his God and severs that fellowship that he must have with him. Sin kills the very soul of man. Romans 6 and verse 23. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And it is an affliction that affects every individual. Romans 3 and verse 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Thus if we had such a tremendous gathering and a momentous occasion as for example the World Cup. And we had that venue in which we could proclaim one sermon to the group that was there in the allotted time. One of the things I would want to be sure and tell them is there is one malady and it kills you. And that malady is sin and it is a violation of the will of God. First John 3 and verse 4. Sin is transgression, the Bible tells us, of the law. And as we know from Romans 3.23, all of us are guilty of that if we've reached that age of accountability and reached that point where we can make choices and are accountable for them. We've chosen to violate His will. There is one malady, and it kills you. But second, if I could preach one sermon to the entire world, I would let them know there is one God, and He loves you. One God, and He loves you. Psalm 19, verse 1, the Bible says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork. Day unto day utter a speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. One commentator made the comment about this particular passage that the sun, moon, and the stars are the evangelists of God. And they march across proclaiming His gospel every day and every night. The Bible says there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. There is not a place where man gathers that these testimonies to His existence are there. It's interesting that when the psalmist said that in verse 3 of Psalm 19, there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. 
that he made an appeal to mankind, mankind that communicates through speech and language. And though there are animals all over the world as well, the testimony that, re- that is revealed through nature appeals to mankind, and that was the very reason God had created them. There is one God, and he loves you. He is the one who created all that is. Nature declares his existence, but as strong a voice as nature is toward his existence, one cannot merely look at nature and learn from nature and learn about what God wants him to do. Look at societies in the past that have tried that. Native Americans in our own country, for example, who looked to nature about them and had various gods based upon what they witnessed about them. If all we had was nature to determine our outlook about what God does and who God is, it might well be that as I witness a violent hurricane lashing at our Gulf Coast, I might think that God is a God of violence. I might think when there are tornadoes that are tearing through the upper Midwest, God is a God of violence, that he's an angry God and a mad God. Thus, if all I look at is nature and try to determine from that who God is and what God requires of me, my, my understanding of God is going to be very limited indeed. But that's one aspect of how God is revealed unto us, and that is through his creation that he has created for us. There is one God and he loves you. God's existence is provable. Not measurable, of course, by any of the five senses. We haven't seen him. We haven't touched him. We haven't smelled him and so on. But God's existence is provable. It is either the case that God is or God is not. The Bible reveals in Psalm 14.1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Fool is a very terse term, and it's not one that God uses in a haphazard fashion. But he does use it on occasion, and here's one of those. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Why would he say that? Because there is so much evidence to the contrary that anyone who says there is no God indeed is foolish. Choice of, there's a choice of two reasons for the existence of the world. Evolution or creation. Creation demands a creator, of course. Evolution implies either birth or transformation. It boils down to a matter as simple as that. Evolution requires either birth or transformation. It couldn't be birth because no, nothing does, something does not come from nothing. And human does not come from non-human. It cannot be a matter of transformation because there's never a time in which one, a, a, a creature takes one step as a beast and the next step as a human being. Thus it rules out, creation, uh, rules out birth as well as transformation. The only viable alternative, of course, is creation. Could not have been a transformation, could not have been a birth of a non-human or a human from a non-human. But we can know about him. The existent, the ideas about him are there. We look at it in a mathematical way. Perhaps you've heard of Peter Stoner's mathematical equations. He was a professor at Columbia University several years ago. And he engaged some of his students in an experiment to determine the probability of the prophecies of Old Testament of coming to pass. And he chose only eight of the major prophecies. And he concluded from his studies and those of his students together that there was the probability of eight of those prophecies being fulfilled by any one individual, one in ten to the seventeenth power. Now that doesn't mean much to us at the outset, but if we look at it, one followed by seventeen zeros. I don't know if there's a name for that number or not, but I don't know the name if there is. That's just eight prophecies. 
Now, Mr. Stoner, knowing that most of us would not appreciate nor understand that kind of numerology, illustrated it in this fashion. He said it would be the same as if we were to take silver dollars and cover the state of Texas. If we did so with silver dollars to the 1 to the 10 to the 17th power, it would cover the entire state of Texas two feet deep. And he said the probability of one man's being able to fulfill all of those prophecies is the same as if we painted one of those silver dollars red and put it anywhere in that two foot high stack anywhere across the state of Texas and then blindfolded a man and told him he could pick up one coin the probability of his picking up the red coin out of all of those vast number of coins across the state of Texas, the same probability of one man fulfilling just eight of those major prophecies of the Old Testament. Now, according to Alfred Edison, there are 456 prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament. He used eight. Imagine what the number would be with 456. You see, God does exist, and it's a provable fact in that regard, even though it can't be proven with the five senses. We can know of him, we can know of him like we know of anyone else, and that is by communication. We mentioned nature earlier. Sure, we can look at nature about us and understand that there is a power higher than us, but I don't know when I look at nature whether there is one God or a thousand. Just as the watchmaker is given as an illustration of that, I can't look at a watch on a person's wrist and tell whether one person made it or a thousand. I can look at that watch and tell that someone of higher intelligence has made it. It didn't make itself. I look at the world about me and I don't know if one God made it or a thousand gods made it. I have to look to the mind of that God in order to understand that. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9, Paul said, But it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither hath entered in the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit, For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. Then Paul gives an illustration. He says, For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Now what do you mean by that? You don't know what I'm thinking unless I tell you. I don't know what you're thinking at this moment unless you tell me. Now we might be given some clues by the expressions on our face. It might be that we've lived with a a spouse for a number of years and we come to the point we think we know what they're thinking. But I can't always know that unless you tell me. What man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. Paul said, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God. Which things, he said in verse 12, we also teach. Not in words, notice words, mind you. Not in words which the wisdom of the world reveals, but which the spirit of God reveals. Comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Now Paul said, these things we've revealed, the things spoken of in 1 Corinthians 2 were those things that were revealed to the apostles and other inspired men. Paul is not saying in 1 Corinthians 2 that we have the direct inspiration from the Holy Spirit, but those men did, which things we also speak, the apostles and other inspired men. Not his words which man's wisdom gives, but which the Holy Ghost gives. Those words then reveal unto us God and what God wants us to do. In order to, go to, in order to understand God, I have to go to his word in regards to that. If I was preaching one sermon to the world... I would want them to know about a God that loves them, who can conquer a malady that will kill them. This God is a good God, Psalm 33 and verse 5. He is holy, 1 Peter 1 and verse 16. He's perfect, Matthew 5 and verse 48. He's a merciful God, Romans 12 and verse 1. Therefore I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. 
He's the God of all comfort and the Father of all mercies. 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 3. He's righteous. Psalm 19 and verse 9. And He is faithful. As Paul reveals in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 9. The Bible reveals God to be one. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 6. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5. The Bible says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. If I was preaching one sermon to the whole world, I'd want them to know there is one God and He loves you. Also, the Bible teaches that God loves everyone. 1 John 4 and verse 8, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, whosoever believeth Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now of all the words in that text, the most magnified one is the word so, the two-letter word so. It's an adverb of manner, revealing in this fashion or in this manner. Thus we can substitute the definition for the word and do the passage no harm. For God in this manner loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. A few years ago I did a series of lessons, I think there were four of them altogether, on the word so. Study it sometime, just the word so. Substituting that definition of being an adverb of manner, being in this fashion or after this manner. God in this fashion or after this manner loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But that covers the world in general. I'd want people to know that God loves everyone. But I'd also want this great crowd assembled to know that God loves you as an individual. Galatians 2 and verse 20, Paul said, For I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life that I am, I live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God, notice, who loved me and gave himself for me. Yes, Christ died for the sins of the world, but he also died for me as an individual. And it's certainly a truism from Scripture that if I am the only one on the day of judgment who is saved eternally, that Christ died for me and would have had he known that in advance. The same is true with you. If I had one sermon to preach the world, I'd want them to know that there is one malady and it kills you. That there is one God and He loves you. I'd also want them to know there is one Lord and He saves you. Ephesians 4 and verse 5, Paul says, One Lord, one faith, and one baptism. 1 Timothy 2, 5, we've noticed. There's one God and one mediator between God and me and the man, Christ Jesus. I'd want the world to know that he's the only begotten Son of God, John 3 and verse 16. That he came here as deity, John 1, 1 to 4. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Same was in the beginning with God, all things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and life was the light of men. He's deity. He's the only Savior of mankind. Buddha can't do it for you. Muhammad can't do it for you. You know the thousands of others that the world has put forth. Isaiah 53 and verse 3, the prophets some 700 years before the birth of Christ made this statement, He is despised and rejected of men, man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from Him. He was despised and we esteemed Him not. Surely hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, chastisement of our pieces upon Him, and with His stripes... We are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. In Acts chapter 2, Peter and the other apostles on that great Pentecost day preached about him and said, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. 
Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken with wicked hands, have crucified and slain, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, for it is not possible that he should be holden of them. I'd want the world to know that there is one Lord, and that Lord Savior. I'd want them to know the conclusion of that sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 and verse 36, where Peter said, Therefore let all the house of Israel know that God hath made this same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Hebrew writer said of him in Hebrews 2 and verse 9, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Takes a blood sacrifice, of course, for that to take place. Hebrews chapter 9 reveals unto us. Second Timothy 2 and verse 10, Paul said, Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Salvation is to be found in Him. He's the one and only Savior of mankind. And if I could preach one sermon to the world tonight or any other night, I'd certainly want them to know that. There is one malady, and it kills you. There is one God, and He loves you. There is one Lord, and He saves you. There is one Bible, and it guides you. I'd want the world to know about that. I'd want them to know that like man, the Bible exists, and therefore it calls for an explanation. It calls for an answer to the question, where did it come from, and what's its purpose for being here? It speaks of scientific matters before science was ever discovered, ever discovered those. It speaks of historic matters before man ever unearthed them. And as we noticed regarding prophecy a few moments ago, it speaks about prophetic matters as if they were historical in nature, speaking of them long before they occurred. All this and more without a single contradiction. Though it was penned by 40 different men over a period of some 15 to 1600 years, living on a number of different countries and several different continents, not a single contradiction. That's because even though it had 40 writers, it has only one author. And that author, of course, is God. It comes from God, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. As Peter says in, in 1, Peter chapter 2 and, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21, 2 Peter 1 and verse 21, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That Bible comes to us not in any fashion that is designed by man. It is not the product of man, but rather the product of God, given through inspired men who were given the very words that they were to proclaim to mankind. And as we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, those words given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in order that we might know those things that otherwise we never would have been able to know. Yes, we can look at nature and determine there is a greater force there than any of us. But we have to look to His Word, the communication we receive from Him, in order to understand His mind, in order to understand the things that He wants from us, and understand many of the things that He has done for us. Man is certainly in need of guidance. Jeremiah 10 and verse 23, Jeremiah said, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his own steps. Proverbs 14 and verse 12 says, There is a way that seemeth right unto man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. I'd want the world to know that we are in ignorance spiritually unless we come to God's Word. That there is one Bible and it guides you. The Bible alone provides that need for us. Hebrews 4 and verse 12, the writer says, The Word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing and dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow, 
and as discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Jesus said in Matthew 4 and verse 4, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. If we had a great venue gathered such as will be for the World Cup and has been in the past, I'd want them to know that there is one malady and it will kill you. I'd want them to know there's one God and He loves you. I'd want them to know there is one Lord and He saves you. I'd want them to know there is one Bible and it guides you. But also, I'd want them to know there is one church and it completes you. I'd want them to know, among other things, that Jesus built it. Matthew 16 and verse 13. The Bible says, When Jesus came to the coast of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? They said unto him, Some say thou art John the Baptist, others Jeremiah, or Elias, or one of the prophets. And he said unto them, By whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. He said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock notice I will build my church, singular in nature, a singular in, uh, possessive in nature, singular in number. I will build my church. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom. Notice, singular in nature. Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What Jesus said on that occasion, as most of us are certainly familiar with, is that he promised to build his church, and he said, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom. He could have used those words interchangeably. He could have said, I'll build my kingdom, and I'll give you the keys of the church, because each of those institutions is certainly the same. It's as if I were to reach into my pocket and say, here are the keys to my car. Would you please go move my automobile? I've not given you the keys to one uh, item and asked you to move another. Simply use two descriptive terms for the same vehicle. So it is that Jesus said, I will build future in nature at this point when he spoke it. My church, singular in nature, uh, singular in number and possessive in nature, it belonged to him. I'd want the world to know that, that Jesus promised he would build his church. I'd also want the world to know that he adds the saved to it, Acts 2 and verse 47. Praising God and having faith with all the people the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. I mentioned yesterday morning in our study together this statement that comes from this passage. You can't join the church to save your life, but you'll have to be added to it to save your soul. That's a lesson the world needs to know because the Bible reveals there that the Lord adds us to the church. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13 it reveals that we're translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son. Either way, it's something that God does for us and to us and with us once we have obeyed the gospel of Christ. We can't join the church of Christ to save our lives. But we'll have to be added to it in order to save our souls. He adds the saved to it. And why shouldn't he? It's his body, Colossians 1 and verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Those who are in Him are in His body. Those who are in His body are in Him. In Him we are made complete. Colossians 2 and verse 10. He's the Savior of that body. Ephesians 5 and verse 23, Paul said, The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is also the head of the church, and He is the Savior of the body. Notice those definite articles there. He is the head, one, of the church, one, the Savior, one, of the body, one. There is only one vehicle, if you will, only one institution that's going from earth to heaven. That's the church of Jesus Christ. There is only one vehicle, if you will, only one institution that's going from Walker County, Alabama, going from Jasper, Alabama, to heaven. And that's the Lord's church. And if we're going to go to heaven, we'll have to be added to that body by the Lord himself. 
We can't join it on our own terms or become a part of it in our own way. We'll have to do it His way and we'll have to be added to it in order to be a part of it. And we'll have to let Him do the adding. You see, He is the Savior of that body in no other way and in no other one. Can one be saved or will one be complete? You must be a part of it to go to heaven. Through the years, the Lord's people have become the butt of jokes and become the um, butt of so many different statements because of that by saying that the church is essential and that one has to be a part of the church in order to be saved. Yet the Bible continually teaches that. It taught it in the first century. We know as we studied yesterday in Acts 8 and verse 5 when Philip went down to the city of Samaria that he preached Christ unto those folks. But we have his outline for us in Acts 8 and verse 12, a sermon I often call the 2,000-year-old sermon outline, wherein he says, it was said of his preaching to those Samaritans where he preached Christ to them. When they believed, Philip preaching the things, notice number one, concerning the kingdom of heaven, and number two, the name of Jesus Christ, authority. Number three, they were baptized, both men and women. Three points to that sermon. The latter one, represented by baptism, is obedience. They had to obey the gospel of Christ. At the very outset from Acts chapter 2, when the gospel was first proclaimed on that long ago day of Pentecost in that ancient city of Jerusalem, those individuals had to obey the gospel of Christ. They had to believe Jesus to be the Son of God. That's why Peter and the other apostles were so adamant in their teaching on that occasion. They had to repent of their sins. and That's why they called upon them to do that very thing in verse 38. They had to confess the name of Christ as all men do, Romans 10 and verse 10. They had to be baptized, and that for the remission of sins. Thus Peter and the other apostles told them so in Acts 2 and verse 38. When they did that, they had obeyed the gospel. Upon doing so, they were added to the church by the Lord himself. They were Christians. They were one saved from the great malady that kills all, saved from their sins by the one who loves all, the God of heaven. There is one church, and it completes you. If we could have that great number of people assembled, preach one sermon to them. We might use different terms in doing it, but we certainly want them to know there's one malady, and it kills you. That's the malady of sin. There is one God, and He loves you. Not just the whole world, even though He does, but you as an individual. There is one Savior and one Lord, and He saves you. There is one Bible, and it guides you. There is one church, and it completes you. And finally, if I could speak, preach one sermon to the entire world, I would want them to know there is one gospel, and it delivers you. It is God's power to save, Romans 1 and verse 16. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it, singular in nature, is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There are not a number of gospels, of course. Those of Galatia were told by Paul, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him which called you into the gospel of Christ and to another gospel, which is not another, but there be some which would trouble you and pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we are an angel from heaven, Preach any other gospel unto you that which you are preaching unto you, let him be accursed. As I've said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you that which you have received, let him be accursed. There is but one gospel, and it and it alone delivers you. It revolves around the sacrifice of this loving God. It revolves around the sacrifice of this loving Savior. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 1, Paul said uh, to those brethren at Corinth, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which you have received, wherein you are saved, if you keep in memory that which I preached unto you. For I delivered unto you, first of all, how that Jesus Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. Herein contained the facts of the Gospel. And yet I would also want this world audience to understand that you must obey the Gospel. 
2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 8, Paul said, In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, notice, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4 that we just noticed, those are the facts of the gospel. An individual has to obey the gospel. How can you obey facts? Well, the fact of the matter is you can't. If I were to say to you, Jesus Christ died, how do you obey that? You can't. It's a fact. A fact can either be believed or disbelieved, but it cannot be obeyed or disobeyed. Those are the facts of the gospel. Jesus died. He was buried. He rose again the third day. Facts must be believed. Based upon the belief of the facts, then one must act upon those, not by his own ideas and uh, ideology, but rather upon what God has given through His written Word as He communicates to us. 1 Corinthians 2 reveals them to us. The Bible reveals that we must obey the gospel of Christ. Hebrews 5, 8 and 9. Speaking of Jesus, the writer said, Though He were a son, yet learned the obedience by the things which He suffered. Being made perfect, He became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey Him. Jesus is the Savior of all mankind, but in actuality and eternally, He will be the Savior of only those who obey Him and none others. Thus I must be obedient to His will. How then can I obey the gospel, these facts that I understand, the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ? If I had that great multitude before me tonight and could preach to them this sermon or one like it, I'd want them to know Romans 10, 17. It says, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Faith will not be produced by a dream that you have in the night or a vision you have by day. It won't be produced by some formation in the clouds you see before you or the grains in the wood to your side. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God. Based upon that hearing the Word of God, we must believe. John 8 and verse 24. Jesus said, I said therefore unto you that you shall die in your sins. For if you believe not that I am He, you shall die in your sins. We must believe that there is one God, that He loves us, that there is one Lord and He saves us. We must believe He's the Son of God. I would tell them as well, the Bible reveals we must repent of our sins. Luke 13, 3. Jesus was asked the question about the blood Pilate had mingled with his sacrifices. And Jesus said, Think ye that these people of Galilee were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such a fate. I tell you, nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Then Jesus added another thought to that, a common thing, no doubt, that was known among the people of that day and time. And had there existed such a thing as the Jerusalem Times, it would have appeared in the paper about this matter. But here's the only instance we have about it in the New Testament. Jesus added this thought to their question, or those 18 upon whom the power of Siloam fell and slew them. Think ye that they were sinners above all that dwelt at Jerusalem? I tell you nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. They had asked about the, innocent, the suffering of innocent individuals who were the victims of a murderous individual, this man Pilate, who had mingled their innocent blood with his sacrifices. But Jesus added to that, what about those 18 innocent individuals on whom the Tower of Siloam fell? What caused it to fall? We don't know. It might have been a defect in material or in workmanship. It might have been a wind that gushed and caused that tower to fall. But whatever the case, 18 innocent individuals lost their lives. Jesus said, do you think they suffered that because they were sinners? He said, no, but unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. You see, sin is something that we do to ourselves. And so Jesus said, you must repent. In Acts 17, 30 and 31, the Bible says, Jesus, Peter, Paul, rather, speaking to those of um, this great metropolis in his day, the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Why, Paul? Because he hath appointed the day in which he will judge the world by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, 
that he's raised him from the dead. I'd want the world to know you have to repent of your sins. I'd want them to know you have to confess the name of Christ before me in Matthew 10, 32 and 33. Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I also confess before my Father which is in heaven. Whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Romans 10 and verse 10. With the heart man believeth unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. I'd want the world to know, and I'd be emphatic about this point because so much is made against it, that you have to be baptized, immersed in water for the remission of your sins in order to be saved, in order to truly to obey the gospel. Jesus said in Mark 16, 16, Of course, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Peter said in 1 Peter 3 and verse 21, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul said in Romans 6 and verse 1, beginning, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. But like as Christ was raised from the dead with the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. I would want them to know that baptism washes away your sins. Acts 22, 16. Saul of Tarsus was told by Ananias, And now why tarriest thou arise and be baptized? Wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. I would want them to know that it's not the water that saves them, but the blood of Christ. Revelation 1 and verse 5. But the only way to contact that is in the waters of baptism. Colossians 2 and verse 12 reveals to us that it's faith in the operation of God. See, the operation takes place in the operating room, if you will. As an illustration of that, let's suppose you were scheduled for major surgery at St. Vincent's in Birmingham tomorrow. And tonight after you got home, you decided, I think I want to do that at my house. You call up St. Vincent's and you say, I want to have that surgery tomorrow in my bedroom. I'll be there waiting on you at 10 o'clock. What do you think they'd do? Well, of course, you have to be in the operating room where the surgeon will be in order to take care of the malady that you have. You see, we can't take care of the malady in our own place by our own means. We have to be in the operating room, if you will, at the hands of the great physician. That operating room is baptism. Therein we contact the blood of Christ in a figurative way. Revelation 1, verse 5. We bury a dead man at baptism. Romans 1, 1 or Romans 6, 1 to 4. Paul said we're buried with him by baptism. If you bury a live man, such as the world proclaims, one who is made alive by faith, and then you baptize him, you bury a live man. You raise the opposite from baptism, what you bury. If you bury a dead man, you raise a live man. If you bury a live man, you're going to raise a dead man. We have to bury a dead man, one who's died through repentance, based upon his faith in Jesus Christ and the confession of that faith before men. He's buried in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. The collective world will be watching next year the 87th, 88th anniversary of the FICA group. When that World Cup gathers together, there will be millions of individuals whose eyes will be fixed upon and focused upon those games that will be played. It's a shame, of course, that so few will pay attention to something far more important and something of far greater concern. But if we had just one opportunity to preach to a, an audience that size or to preach, as we mentioned tonight, one sermon to the entire world, we can't do that. So we have to preach and deliver a message to our corner of it. Let them know that one God formed you, one malady deformed you, 
One book informs you. One Savior transforms you. Transforms you and one gospel reforms you. If I had one sermon to preach to the world tonight, I'd let them know in no uncertain terms there is one malady and it kills you. There is one God and He loves you. There is one Lord and He saves you. There is one Bible and it guides you. There is one church and it completes you. There is one gospel and it delivers you. Tonight the sermon that would be true for the entire world is true for our corner of it. That lesson tonight, true for the entire world, is also true for this very room, this very auditorium, for each one of us. The Bible says the same thing to all men, regardless of how men view it, what men teach about it, what men think about it. The Bible says the same thing to all. If we're going to be obedient to God and have an eternal home in heaven with Him, we're going to have to follow that word. They did it 2,000 years ago and have done so in the intervening time span since then if they were pleasing to God. Tonight, the same thing is true. If we could preach one sermon to the world, we'd want them to know these matters. But since we don't have the entire world gathered, these matters are presented to those of us who are present tonight. If you've never rendered obedience to the gospel of Christ, we want you to know in uncertain terms tonight, there's one malady, and it kills you. There's one God, and He loves you. There's one Lord, and He saves you. There's one Bible, and it guides you. There's one church, and it completes you. There's one gospel and it delivers you. Will you obey the gospel of Christ tonight? If you're a member of his body but you've turned away, tonight you have an opportunity, golden in nature, in which you can respond to the Lord's invitation and ask God's people to forgive you, knowing that God is faithful and just to forgive the confession of our sins. 1 John 1 and verse 9. Can we assist you tonight? If so, won't you come while we stand and while we sing? Just take one more second to invite you to be back with us tomorrow night at uh, 7 o'clock. Uh, food group 2, I guess it is, will be hosting the, uh, uh, the meal at 5.30. And so uh, we want to remind everybody of that. Appreciate the group tonight who, who provided the meal. It was delicious, and we appreciate you for taking time and, and providing that for us. If you'll bring somebody with you tomorrow night, we'll have twice as many as we have tonight. So go home and call somebody up. 
Try to put them by your side and bring them with you to be with us at our gospel meeting tomorrow night. Are there any other announcements? I know there are a number of things going on in our community with uh, uh, Vacation Bible School at Crossroads, gospel meeting at Adamsville, but uh, we want you to be here if at all possible. If nothing else, we'll have a verse of a closing song, and then following that, Brother Don Wells will lead us in our closing prayer. When my way groweth drear, precious Lord.